Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, uh, we're going to begin a new series uh, this afternoon. Uh, when I have opportunities to preach this year, I'll be preaching from the book of Colossians, and I hope to make it mostly through uh, this year. Uh, Colossians is a beautiful book. It has riches and treasures for our souls. Uh, I'm very excited about this study. Um, some of the main things that Colossians deals with, there's a very high Christology in this book that we'll, we'll look at. Um, there's a whole issue of Christian liberty that comes up in Colossians, as well as many ethical principles for the Christian life. So this is a very good book, and I'm excited to study this with you all. And this afternoon, we're going to introduce the book of Colossians. We'll have some foundational knowledge that will help us um, when we continue through uh, the book of Colossians. So the introduction is going to be extended uh, this afternoon, uh, but I do intend to study the first two verses, and we'll have an outline uh, once we get through the introduction. So we'll read the first two verses in a little bit, but it might be good to have your Bibles open to Colossians as we'll be referencing different things throughout the book. So first of all, uh, by way of introduction, who's the author? Who wrote Colossians? Well, it's clear from the very first verse that Paul wrote Colossians. He's the author. If you look at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, some have questioned whether Paul really was the author of the book of Colossians or the letter of Colossians. And I disagree with them. I think Paul clearly is the author. Let me give you several reasons, though. Um, why these arguments don't hold weight. Um, arguments against Paul being the author of Colossians, they don't appear until really the, the 20th century, the early 20th century. Um, so in all of church history, no one disputed this until post-enlightenment. And I don't think they're very compelling arguments. And one of the main reasons is the criteria that are used to judge whether Paul wrote a book or not, they end up being quite subjective. What criteria do you use? It's usually up to the scholar. And the other reason why is that I think it's very clear Paul wrote this letter is if you look at the early church, um, the patristics, it's unanimous. They all say Paul wrote this book. Um, it's an authentic letter. And if you realize that the early church is looking at other um, books that, um, are per that were not included in the canon, you can see that they unanimously believed Colossians was written by Paul. Now, we firmly believe that Paul wrote this letter, but we also firmly believe that the divine author of all scripture is the Holy Spirit. And so we must take both into account. And so we need to know a little bit about Paul in order to understand his letter. Uh, so, for example, we have to remember that Paul was a real human being, with his own perspectives, his own interests, his own education, his own life story, his own trials. And so we need to remember Paul's life as we work our way through Colossians. Paul will appeal to certain parts of his testimony in Colossians. Now, if you look at verse 1, look at verse 1 again. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Consider the great mercy that God showed Paul. 
Paul was the greatest enemy of the church, but through the will of God, things changed, and he became its greatest champion, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul also says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's not his own. He's not a self-appointed apostle. He belongs to the Messiah. He had previously hated him, but he met him on the road to Damascus, and he realized that Jesus was the Messiah, and now he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And this apostleship has come to him, Paul, by the will of God. Paul didn't decide to become an apostle. In fact, he was hunting the apostles. (laughs) He did not become an apostle by his own decision-making. His soul was arrested on the road to Damascus. It's one of the most powerful conversions in Scripture. And he was commissioned for the cause of Christ. And it's important to recognize this because everything we read in Colossians is written with the authority of an apostle of Christ Jesus. So it is the very words of Christ to us. Now, some of you might notice in verse 1, there's a little phrase there that says, and Timothy, our brother. And some of you might be wondering, does that mean that Paul and Timothy were co-authors? Did they both write this letter? I don't think so, and there's several reasons for this. Paul bases the authority of this letter on his apostolic authority. Notice he doesn't call Timothy an apostle. What is Timothy? Our brother. He makes a distinction there between himself as an apostle and Timothy as his brother. Also, starting in chapter 1 and throughout the entire book, Paul uses the word I, first person singular. He's not saying we. So some have suggested that perhaps Timothy was a secretary to Paul, that, that Paul dictated and Timothy wrote down this letter. That's probable. It's, it's, it's plausible, perhaps. But it doesn't mean that Timothy is a co-author of the contents of this letter. This is from the apostle Paul. So there's the author Secondly, by way of introduction, let's talk about the place and the date of writing. The place and the date of writing. From what I can tell, Paul was probably at Rome when he wrote this letter. And there's several reasons for this. In the very last verse of Colossians, Paul says, remember my chains. So Paul is in prison when he writes this. So then biblical scholars, it's their job to look at all the times when Paul was imprisoned, which is actually quite a lot, and to figure out which imprisonment is he talking about. When we narrow down the best times, I I think um, his imprisonment in Rome fits the best. And there's several reasons for this. Um, You can can ask me later if you want more information. Um, There's a very interesting fact, though, is that Colossians is very similar to another book of the Bible, which is Philemon. Um, Philemon, if you remember, is the, uh, the master of Onesimus, who Onesimus runs away from Philemon and goes to Paul. Well, Philemon lived in Colossae. In fact, the church in Colossae met at Philemon's house. So when we put some of these things together, um, we can kind of help us, when did Paul write this letter? Um, also, if you look at the list of people at the end of Colossians and at the end of Philemon, they're almost identical. There's just one person that's different. So Paul obviously is in a very similar time of life, writing to very similar uh, groups of people during that era or period of his life. 
Also, Colossians bears lots of doctrinal similarities to Ephesians and Philippians. So it's very plausible that Paul wrote these four letters around the same time and sent them out. So the question then is, when did he write this letter? And we, we don't know for certain. There's not a, a certain date. But there's a really intriguing historical fact about Colossae. There was a series of earthquakes that completely destroyed Colossae in about AD 60 or 61. The, the town was leveled. In fact, all of its in, um, occupants had to leave and go to a different city. So we, Paul doesn't mention this earthquake, obviously, so it's very plausible that Paul wrote this book, uh, this letter, to Colossae before AD 61. And it also makes sense because Paul was imprisoned in Rome during that time. So that's the, the place and the date of writing. And finally, by way of introduction, let's talk about the purpose of Colossians. Well, we know that Paul is writing to the Christians who lived in Colossae. You can see that in verse 2. So where was Colossae? If you have a map at the back of your Bible, it might be good to just quickly look at that so you, it might be helpful to see a visual of where Colossae is. Uh, Colossae was a city in Asia Minor, which is in Turkey today. Um, it's in the interior, it's inland um, from Ephesus. So Ephesus is that large city, it's a port city, it's, it's a, one of the most important cities in the, the Roman province there. And if you go upriver, up the Lycus River, you'll get to Colossae. And Colossae was very close to two other cities, um, Hierapolis and Laodicea. Um, in fact, Paul writes a letter to the Laodiceans, and then he tells the Colossians to swap letters with the church I wrote to Laodicea. Um, so you might recognize that as well. That's one of the lost letters of Paul. We actually don't have it. Um, you can see that Colossae was on a trade route, a very important trade route. It's, the trade route started from Ephesus. It went upriver through Colossae, and then it would eventually go through what's called the Cilician Gates, which is a pass in the mountains, and it would go down to Tarsus. If that rings a bell, Paul actually travels going the other way on one of his missionary journeys. And a few other things that's important to know about Colossae, if it's on a trade route, that means people and ideas are coming through Colossae. Um, they would have had access to many different ideas and philosophies, and we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Um, Colossae was not a large city. Its major export was wool, so that means it's probably a rural city. They're raising sheep. Um, and we don't know much about the church that was in Colossae, but we do know a few things. There was a man named Epaphras. You probably have heard the name Epaphras before. He's one of the friends of Paul. If you ever want a fascinating study, go study the friends of Paul that he lists. It's a very interesting and productive study. But Epaphras plants the church in Colossae. You can see this in verse 7 of chapter 1. Paul says that the Colossians first heard the gospel from Epaphras. And this maybe had been the fruit of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He stayed there for three years, and perhaps Epaphras was from Ephesus and went there to plant churches um, in, in Colossae and maybe Laodicea. Um, so that's the origin of the church in Colossae. As I said before, Philemon lived in Colossae. The church met in his house. 
And also, there was a man named Archippus, and he, he was probably a pastor at this church. At the end of Colossians, Paul says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. So those are some of the facts that we know about the church here. It was planted by Epaphras, and there's a pastor named Archippus. It meets in Philemon's house. Now, why did Paul write this letter to the, the saints in Colossae? There had been false teaching that had entered the church in Colossae, and perhaps even from among the church members themselves. We see that Epaphras journeyed to Paul, and he brings with him some kind of report of what was happening in Colossae to Paul, and Paul feels that he needs to respond, and he writes this letter to the Colossians. It's important to realize he never met the Colossians. Paul never met the Colossians. He's hearing Epaphras' report, and then he's writing to them. He does, want to, he does say he wants to visit the saints in Colossae, but he has not visited them when he writes this letter. And Paul sends uh, Tychicus, another friend of Paul, uh, to Colossians with the letter that they have. Now, what do we know about the false teaching in Colossae? Why, what, what's the occasion for this letter? Uh, there's, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly what the heresy was because it's quite eclectic. Uh, Paul calls it, though, he calls it a philosophy in chapter 2, which means it had some kind of organized form. This false teaching in Colossae pushed human tradition and rules and also the holding of Jewish holy days, okay? But it also was obsessed with worshiping angels and spiritual beings and was also centered on visions and dreams, okay? That's quite the eclectic mix of bad ideas put together. And it makes sense, remember what I said earlier about Colossae being on a trade route. It's very possible they had Jude uh, Jewish beliefs, um, pagan, Greek, Greco-Roman, and other um, cults that would, the teaching would have come from those different sources. And um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what this is, but we'll, we'll deal with it as we come to the different um, elements of this, of this heresy. And Paul summarizes the whole false teaching that was going on, though, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, it does not depend on Christ. The false teaching at Colossae uh, appealed to spiritual beings, to dreams, to visions, to rules and traditions, to seek how to be a Christian. But this attacked the sufficiency of Christ. And that's one reason, I think, why Colossians is very important for us today. Any teaching that we come across that questions or rejects the sufficiency of Christ is false. And Paul has no sympathy for such a position and neither should we. And so Colossians can help us to discern false teaching. So we've introduced the book, and I would like to read the first two verses and to unpack, to, to mine some beautiful truths from specifically verse 2 about who we are as Christians. So if you're there, please make sure you're at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Well, as we study these two verses, I have a, a thesis, the sermon in one sentence. B 
because of discouragements, distractions, or divergent ideas, you need to remember who you are in Christ. Because of discouragements, distractions, or divergent ideas, you need to remember who you are in Christ. And we'll have five points in our outline, and they're all ways that Paul describes the Colossians just in verse 2, verse 1 and 2. And the the first point is the most important point. So we're going to go through them in, in succession, but you could really think about the first point as the center and the next four points as going out from the center of point one. So number one, number one, Christians have union with Christ. Christians have union with Christ. And we read this in verse two. Paul says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Let's spend a moment and study those two beautiful words in Christ. Now, this is one of those phrases that we read all the time in the Bible. It's a common phrase. But perhaps in our familiarity with it, we have overlooked the richness of this term. And so please bear with me as we look at this. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases. He uses the exact phrase in Christ 25 times, but if you combine it with in him and in the Lord, it's over 200 times Paul uses this phrase in his letters. This is very important to understand Paul's theology. And it's a, it's a foundational and a profound way of describing your identity as a Christian. Who are you as a Christian? Well, Paul says that the Colossians are in Christ. And so if you're a true believer, you are in Christ And it is your great interest to understand what it means to be in Christ. So let's look at the phrase in the bare words, in Christ. I want to just to to commend to you that these are not throwaway words. This is not just an arbitrary collection of two words that Paul has picked. No, these are deliberately chosen by Paul and by the Holy Spirit. So the first word is a preposition, the word in. Well, the word in expresses the close relation or association between things. So Paul is saying that the Christians have some kind of close relation or association with Christ. They are in Christ. What about the second word? The word Christ, it's not actually a name. You might have heard this, but it's a title. It means anointed one, or Messiah. So you could actually say it this way, in the Messiah. If you want a way to enrich your reading of Paul, whenever you come across the word Christ, replace it with the Messiah. Now, the word Christ is good enough, right? But we tend to think of it as like a last name tacked on there. But the word Christ is Messiah. And so when he says, when you combine the words Jesus and Christ You're saying that Jesus, the man, is the Messiah. And that's a profound theological statement. And so he says that they are in Christ. Paul is claiming that the Colossians and all Christians have a profound and intimate relationship with the Messiah, who, of course, is Jesus. 
And I want us to recall Paul's own experience with this Messiah. Before he was converted, Paul was a devout Jew. He was looking for the coming of the Messiah. But the Messiah came, and Paul missed it, and Paul rejected that Messiah. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised by God. And he persecuted with great zeal any follower of the way, as it says in Acts, who claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. But then, as we all know, one momentous day on the road to Damascus, intent to imprison all the Christians in that town, what happened? A light suddenly came from heaven and shone on him, and he heard a voice crying, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, in that moment, Paul's eyes were open to the identity of the Messiah. It was Jesus, the one whom he had rejected. And not only that, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You see, Paul knew that by persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the Messiah. Do you see, this is the origin of Paul's idea of what it means to be in Christ. There is some bond, some union between Christ and Christians that when you persecute Christians, you persecute Christ. So, what does it mean to be united with Christ? Well, we could spend years studying this phrase because of how much it appears in Paul's letters. And it is somewhat difficult to precisely define. But we could talk about it in many ways. We could talk about the fact that we were chosen in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. We could also talk about the fact that we're united with Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Paul says this in Romans 6.5, that we are united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That also speaks to our union with Christ. We could also talk about the fact that we experience union with Christ in our lives as Christians in the here and now. And in his letters, Paul uses the metaphor of marriage to discuss this union between Christians and Christ. What does he say? For the two shall become one flesh. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And he says it's a great mystery. Well, our union with Christ is a mystery. Uh, That's why some have called it the mystical union. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. The word mystical, don't let that mislead you. It just means mysterious, that we don't know exactly what it is. It's also called the spiritual union because it is the Holy Spirit who actually affects this union with Christ. So you can see this is a deep and a rich subject. It's worthy of study and contemplation. Let me say three things, though, about union with Christ to hopefully to stir your minds to think about this. Number one, union with Christ is covenantal. Union with Christ is covenantal. Because as Christians that we're in Christ, we have all the blessings of his new covenant. We used to be in Adam. You could say we had union with Adam, or as the older theologians say, solidarity with Adam. But now, since we have union with Jesus Christ, 
He is the mediator and the federal head of the new covenant. And so this entails that if we are united with him, then we get all the blessings of the new covenant. And what are the blessings of the new covenant? Well, we're born again by the spirit, regeneration. We are declared righteous before God. We're justified. We are adopted into his family. We are sanctified and we will be glorified. And so we can see that union with Christ is covenantal. The second thing we can see is that union with Christ means we have communion with the triune God. Union with Christ means we have communion with the triune God. What did Jesus say? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Those, are, those who are united to Jesus Christ they also have communion with his Father, for he is in his Father, and his Father is in him. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And so because of our union with Christ, we have communion with the triune God. That's a thought worthy of meditation. And thirdly, and this is a much more practical application, union with Christ shapes your most fundamental identity. Union with Christ shapes your most fundamental identity. Our society has a lot to say about identity, doesn't it? Our society tries to tell you many lies about who you are. Here's some examples. Our society says your identity is your work. Who you are is completely one with how well you perform at your job or other activities. Your identity is your performance. Or your identity is your possessions. How much money do you have? And what kind of car you drive? And what kind of brands do you wear? Without these things, you're nothing. All you are is your possessions. Or maybe your identity is wrapped up in your popularity, your social connections, how many people like your posts on Facebook or Instagram. Or also, your identity is your sexuality. Our society tries to tell you that the most foundational reality about you is your sexual desires. That's how you should think of yourself in terms of your identity. Well, Paul would have zero sympathy for any of these lies. As a Christian, your identity is not equal to your work, possessions, popularity, or sexuality. Your fun fundamental identity is found in the two words in our text, in Christ. And if you struggle with placing your identity in these things, you have created idols of those things and you will become like them and they are perishable things and they will never satisfy your soul. I urge you to remember that you are united with Christ and if your identity is in Christ, therefore you have union with the triune God and that is not something that is perishable and not something that changes. And so remember who you are especially in the face of our culture that tries to tell you with all its might that your identity is in something other than Christ. Our second main point, the second thing that Paul says about the Colossians is that Christians are saints. Christians are saints. We see this in verse 2. He calls them saints. You could also say holy ones. The Greek word is hagias. Um, if you know the, the Hagia Sophia and in Instable, that's the, the holy wisdom. So holy is in that word, the saint or holy one. Now, you'll notice this right away. Notice how he calls 
all the Colossians, without any discrimination, saints. All of them are saints. He doesn't single out the most mature Christians in Colossae and say, no, you're saints. No, he calls all of them saints. And many of you may have been raised in a tradition that venerated certain men or certain women to the status of sainthood. I would submit to you that Paul would have none of that. Paul does not use the word saint here to to specify certain individuals above others on the basis of performance. No, he calls all of them saints. And I would submit to you that when Paul calls the Colossians saints, he's not really referring to their upstanding moral character, their behavior, but their status. They are saints of God. They are holy ones. And if there's, there's a rich Old Testament background for this whole idea of being a holy one. Uh, we see a pattern in the Old Testament where God draws his people from the nations, a set-apart people for his own possession. If you want to turn to or you can just listen to Exodus 19.6, God calls Israel out of the nations and God t- tells Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, Israel was called out of the nations by God to be his holy people, his holy nation. They were holy ones set apart. And Peter picks up on this concept in 1 Peter 2 when he calls Christians a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I love that. You see what Peter's doing there? He's using the exact phraseology of Exodus 19 about Israel, and he's applying it to the church. We are the ones who are set apart. We are called out of the nations, yes, but also out of the kingdom of darkness, and we are now in the, the, the dominion of his dear son. We are the true and better Israel. We are the people who God has called out of the nations to be his special people. We are saints. And so I think Paul's not really commenting so much on their behavior, but on their status. Now, notice, let's let's connect this to our first point. Notice that Paul says they are saints and faithful brothers in Christ. You see how being a saint is tied and connected to being in Christ. The only way a person can become a saint is because of their union with Christ. And this is very important for our lives and our sanctification, our, our, our attempts at becoming holy. Now, if I called you a saint, many of you would be like, huh, I don't feel very saintly, though. Why are you calling me a saint? Well, you are a saint if you are in Christ. And here's a wonderful truth about being a saint that I think will encourage you. When you are united with Christ, things are set in motion that cannot be undone. G.K. Buell writes, once the new creation begins in you, it cannot be reversed. Now, this doesn't mean you can achieve perfection in this life, but it means that the process of sanctification has begun in the life of a Christian and it will not be stopped. This is extremely encouraging. What does Paul say in Philippians 1.6? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work 
in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will lose none that are his. And so those, are, those who are united to Christ are given a new heart and a new spirit in them. And when we think of our sanctification, sometimes we only think of it as a process, something that we do as we um, grow in our holiness. We can think of sanctification in two ways. What's sometimes called our positional sanctification and our progressive sanctification. Our positional sanctification means that as Christians, we have been broken from the dominion of sin and brought into the kingdom of Christ. We have the spirit within us. And progressive sanctification is where the Holy Spirit renews us into the image of Christ so that we will be a holy people who can dwell with a holy God when we go to be with him. Now, again, the scriptures are clear. We all must actively pursue holiness. This is not something where you can check out. Absolutely not. But we can also tend to have an unrealistic and despairing idea and view of our own sanctification. I can't be holy. I can't do it. Well, Kevin DeYoung wrote a wonderful book that you need to read. Um, It's called The Whole in Our Holiness. I know many of you have read it, and it's about the possibility of holiness. Let me read one quote from his book. You are no longer a slave, but free. Sin has no dominion over you. It can't. A new king sits on the throne. You are in Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's holy, so you are holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive in righteousness. Now live like it. And then he says, do not strive after holiness because you cower in dread of God. Strive after holiness because you are confident you already belong to God. You see, the Christian has this confidence about him that if you are united with Christ, that the work that has begun in you will be completed. And we need to have confidence in that and not despair in our strivings to be holy. And so we see in our text that Paul calls the Colossians saints. That's a wonderful way to describe Christians. You are saints. You are set apart from God, set apart by God, called out of the world, and this is only possible because of your union with Christ. Let's move on to the third point. The next three points will be quite brief. Number three, Christians are faithful. Christians are faithful. If you, you can see this right in your text as well, um, Paul says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Now, he, he doesn't just call them saints, but he also says they're faithful. I think the order is very important here. He talks about who they are, saints, and then how they are acting. Truly, those who are set apart by God will be faithful. Saints will be faithful. And I think it's interesting, as I said before, Paul never met the Colossians, and yet he calls them faithful. And if you, if you study and you look through all the greetings of Paul, he never calls any of the other churches faithful in the greeting. He only calls the Colossians faithful. So this leads me to think Epaphras must have brought a really positive report to Paul that he could call them faithful. Well, what does he mean by calling the Colossians faithful? Well, it could mean really two things. 
It could either reflect their loyalty and commitment to Christ, they are faithful, or it could be singling out the recipients of this letter as being faithful in opposition to those who are not faithful, right? The false teaching. Now, those aren't really mutually exclusive. It could be um, referring to both. Now, imagine if you were one of the Colossians and you're maybe hearing Tychicus or Archippus read this letter to you in your church. Paul calls you in the first two verses, saints faithful in Christ. I think that would have been very encouraging to hear. Paul calls us faithful. And for us who are Christians, we need to remember that this as well rests in our union with Christ. Faithfulness has its source and root in our union with Christ. Listen again to Paul. Faithful brothers in Christ. Christians are faithful because of their union with Christ. I hope by now you're seeing the far-reaching ramifications of union with Christ. It's everywhere in Paul. And we need to remember that any effort to remain faithful as a Christian that is not grounded on the person and work of Christ is doomed to fail. We must remember that because we are united with Christ, the Holy Spirit grows us and sanctifies us, and therefore we are faithful. We remain steadfast in the opposition of heresy, in the opposition of sin, and all other trials. And so Paul calls the Colossians faithful. And may I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to continue and to remain faithful as Christians. Number four, number four, Christians are a family. Christians are a family. Now, this is from verses one and two. We actually see three references to the family here. Look at verse one. Paul calls Timothy our brother, our brother. Obviously, Timothy is not the, the by, by blood brother of Paul and the Colossians. This, there's something else going on here. Then in verse two, he calls the Christians at Colossae saints and faithful brothers. And then in verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father. So we have Timothy, our brother. You are, our, you are the brothers in Colossae and God is our father. Right away, we can see that Paul is using the analogy of the family to speak of the church. And Paul's going to expand on this later. And so I will be brief here, but notice one thing. And you might already guess what I'm going to say. The reason why Christians are a family is because of their union with Christ. Because we are united with Christ, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, as he says in Galatians 4. And because we have communion with God through our union with Christ, that means that we have communion with one another. Our confession has a whole chapter, which is called the communion of the saints. It's chapter 27. Listen to the way it describes Christians. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and faith, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. 
That's a great way to, to learn about the family of God. It is because of our vertical relationship with God that we have a horizontal family with one another. And so we can call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege and what a blessing to be able to do that. And if Paul refers to the spiritual family of God here, what's an application we can take from this? Well, it's a great privilege to be counted as a family member, is it not? And we have to remember it's only by the merits of Christ and our union with him that we are family members. So we ought to not be prideful that we are in the family and to lord ourselves over others. We also ought to recognize that all Christians are our brothers and sisters. This can be difficult for some of us to remember. Now, if you think about Colossae, there's a whole hodgepodge of culture and ethnicities there in Colossae. But no matter the differences that, that were between them in an earthly way, they could look to each other and say, brother or sister. And so the same is with us. No matter your cultural background, your social status, your ethnicity, your gender, or native tongue, you are a brother and sister in Christ. I think that's very encouraging. And let me apply this. If you are part of the family, how should you act towards the family? What are some of the duties of being in the family? This is very brief, but let me give you a few. When the family gathers, you're there. When the family gathers, you're there. If you are really part of the family of God in this, in this place in, in Trinity and La Mirada, when the family's there, you're there. If you're not with the family ever, are you part of the family? You're not there. That's a, that's a grief to the rest of the family. So when the family gathers, you are there. Also, strive to uphold the purity and the peace of the family. Look out for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Seek accountability from the family. Don't try to divide the family. Try to strive for the peace of the family. Be ready to forgive each other. Also, follow the good example of older family members. This is our Titus too. You are in the family. There are other family members who are older and have gone through many things. Follow their good example. And then, you be an example to the family. <laughs> No matter who you are, there is someone younger that is watching you. Be an example to the family. Also, support the family in its worship and its work. Those, this is, uh, we could go uh, many different tangents here. But support the family in its worship and work. And finally, assist the family in times of difficulty. If the family's going through a hard time, be there for the family. And I think... That's going on even right now in our church, and you guys are doing a wonderful job at that. Continue in that. So, uh, Paul uses the language of family to speak of the Colossians. The last point, number five, Christians have peace because of grace. Christians have peace because of grace. If you look at the very end of verse 2, it's the very standard Pauline greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, Paul uses this a lot, but let me remind you again, this is not a merely polite throwaway term that he just tacks into the beginning of his letter. Some of us, if you write letters anymore, write dear so-and-so. Do you think about the word dear? Is that something that's intentional? Maybe some of you it is, and that's wonderful. But Paul here he is very intentional 
in what he says. He's not just using arbitrary words that have no meaning. Well, let's analyze this greeting or this, this, uh, this phrase, grace to you and peace. In the Greco-Roman world, if you would write a letter, it was very common to include the word kyrain at the beginning of your letter. Uh, that just means greetings. Paul uses the word charis. Do you hear the, the, the very similarity there? Kyrain, charis. Kyrain was greetings. Charis is grace. And so Paul is, in a sense, using what's common in, in, in the time that he lived, but he's, he's uh, adding a theological meaning to that. And what is grace? It's the unmerited favor of God. Paul loves the word grace. He uses it a lot, the sovereignty of God in salvation. He also uses the word peace. That's another theologically loaded term, we might say. In the Old Testament, the, what's the word for peace? Shalom, right? And it was to experience a whole relationship with God. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system was it not to have peace with God. And so Paul puts these two concepts together and says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's important to notice the order of the words. What comes first? Grace, then peace. How can human beings have peace with God and, in, and enjoy eternal peace with him? It is only through grace. It is only through the unmerited grace of God who calls many sons to glory. You could say it this way, peace is the goal, grace is how we get there. But we have to remember Paul speaking to believers here. Is he wishing that unbelievers would have grace and peace? No, that's not what he's saying. They have already experienced grace and peace. So what is Paul saying when he says grace to you and peace from God our Father? Is he saying something, is he stating a fact? Or is he wishing that they would experience the grace and peace of God? Well, I think it's both. It is a fact that Christians have peace with God, and that's only because of grace. I think we could all understand that and be encouraged by that. It's encouraging and also humbling. It is only by grace that we have peace. And it's also true that Paul wants the Colossians to experience the grace and peace of God in their daily lives, especially in the face of heresy. So I think this phrase is, was meant by Paul to encourage the Colossians, and it's almost the entire purpose for this letter, is that grace to you and peace from God our Father. As they wade through the difficult false teaching, they need to remember that they have peace with God, and it's only because of grace. Well, in conclusion, I want to address two kinds of people here. If you're outside of Christ, I want you to listen to me right now. You are not in Christ. You do not have union with Christ. You are not a saint. You are not a holy one. You are in the world. You are in Adam. You are not faithful. You serve your father, the devil. You are not part of the family. You do not have peace with God, and you have not experienced the grace of God. Well, what do you do then? Well, the scriptures teach that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So friend, if you're here 
and you are listening to my words and you do not know Christ and him crucified, I want you to contemplate the surpassing love of God to lost sinners. And remember that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're a believer here this afternoon, I hope this has been greatly encouraging to you. Remember who you are in Christ. As you face discouragements and distractions and divergent ideas about who you are, remember your identity in Christ. You are in him. You are saints. You are faithful. You're a family. And you have peace because of God's grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that 2,000 years ago, you inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words to the Colossians. And we thank you for preserving this letter for us, that we might grow in grace, that we might be edified and convicted and inspired, Lord. Uh, we thank you for this. And Lord, I thank you that in Christ, Lord, we have union with him, that we are saints and faithful brothers and sisters in the family of God, and that because of your grace, we have peace with you. We thank you for these things. I pray if there are any here that are outside the family and outside of Christ, that you with your sovereign power would arrest their hearts, just like the Apostle Paul, and that they would see the, the, the majestic beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel and the surpassing love of God. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that as we, we, we in our daily lives, work towards a sanctification um, progressively, that we would remember, Lord, that we are saints, that you began a good work in us and you will complete it. And I pray that this would give us confidence in our battle against sin and in our striving to be holy. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.